This is the Mormon program, where we get more out of our Mormonism because we know it's not about what we seek, but how we seek it. Let's talk about the spirit world. I have read a lot of near-death experience books by Latter-day Saints and by non-members and by all kinds, and there's a consistency to these stories that kind of corroborates for me that we really may be onto something here. But before I dig in, I want to recognize that, yes, I know, NDEs or um, near-death experiences are not scripture. They're not doctrine. Uh, whenever I try to talk to Latter-day Saints on this topic, they will say things like, that's not official revelation, as if we shouldn't be talking about that sort of thing, you know, as if all things don't require examination. And so just to be clear, I treat doctrine and non-doctrine the very same way. I run by the Holy Spirit everything that proceeds forth from the mouth of a prophet, the same way I pass by the Spirit, something that I'll read in a secular book. Or I very often watch YouTube videos, like a lot of my books and YouTube videos are Christian in nature. So there's not much distinction for me between scripture, or that, that is LDS scripture, and then non-scripture. Because I have to use the Holy Ghost anyway to redound back to me what it is that I'm reading. So, you know, people say things like, oh, before you read the Apocrypha or something that's not been corroborated by the brethren, you know, be very careful about those sorts of things. I don't think there's any such thing as like, a prophet said it's good, so it's 100% definitely true, you know. I'm not sure that it's black and white, in other words. I almost look at truth like like little puzzle pieces that you can gather from anywhere, from different churches and different religions and different authors and poets and even from our friends. Like friends with different points of view will have little pieces of the puzzle. And then I feel like if you gather enough of these puzzle pieces, eventually you'll start to make out a picture of who God is and what heaven is about. And so... I feel like we should expect this process to be complicated. Terrell Gibbons discusses this weird monopoly on truth that Mormons feel like we have. He says, a problem related to perceptions of Mormonism's monopoly on truth is the impression that Mormons claim a monopoly on salvation. It grows increasingly difficult to imagine that a body of a few million in a world of eight billion can really be God's only chosen people and heirs of salvation. That's because they aren't. One of the most unfortunate misperceptions about Mormonism is this tragic irony. Joseph Smith's view is one of the most generous, liberal, and universalist conceptions of salvation in all Christendom. DNC 49.8 refers to holy men about whom Joseph knew nothing and whom the Lord had reserved unto himself. And the Lord is clearly indicating that Mormons do not have a monopoly on righteousness, truth, or God's approbation. That temple covenants may be made and kept here or hereafter, and the ordinance of salvation performed in person or vicariously means our conception of his church should be as large and as generous as God's heart. Joseph's teaching suggests that the church is best understood as a portal for the saved, not the reservoir of the righteous. And as far as the complexities surrounding the arduous process of finding truth in a fallen world, we live in a world where scientific mysteries, even after all this progress science has made, we still fall short. So nature still continues to thwart some of the greatest minds in the human race. Science still can't fully explain how the monarch butterfly maps out its migration so specifically and ends up in a particular location in central Mexico after two months of flight using very few directional cues. We can't explain how salmon know to travel thousands of miles from the ocean to their needles stream to spawn. And I'm not belittling science, I'm only demonstrating that the best minds among us here on earth still fall short of explaining the mysteries of God and his universe. When it comes to finding truth, we really must be left to marvel at our own finitude before the infinitude of creation like Moses did. And it would be fitting as we try to unlock heaven's mysteries to ourselves that the gospel will continually disrupt our expectations of simplicity.
Why would we expect that our interactions with the spirit world and with the divine would be predictable or straightforward? And yet people treat it that way. They treat it as cut and dry. The prophets have made mistakes throughout history. How about Brigham with his Adam-God theory or blood atonement? How about Bruce R. McConkie with his assertion that, quote, the theory of evolution runs counter to the plain and explicit principles set forth in the Holy Scriptures? Despite the fact that BYU has taught evolution since the 1950s and that over 50% of the church membership, according to a Pew poll, believe in evolution, as well they should because it's undeniable. And so I know it requires some open-mindedness to dip into some of these near-death experiences because it is a little difficult to gauge the credibility, but some people have passed beyond the veil and have come back with amazing stories to tell. So I feel like there are some truths to mine from this exploration. One LDS man who passed beyond the veil reported that the spirit world is superimposed over our world and that we're never alone. Not ever, he says. And he said the spirits good and bad are consistently vying for our attention. Joseph F. Smith said, I believe we live in the presence of heavenly messengers and heavenly beings. We are not separate from them. They see us and they are solicitous for our welfare and they love us now more than ever. Allow me to quote a man whose guiding angel on the other side of the veil explained a few things to him. One thing that was explained was that the telestial order or the mortal order is to be done away and we will elevate to a terrestrial order. So Zion will be a terrestrial city. And that's part of why all these seemingly scary prophecies in the book of Revelation will be necessary. The burning and destroying of the earth, everything of a telestial order must be done away in order for the next phase to be inaugurated. And so our bodies will change in synchronization with the new order. And that's why we'll translate from mortal celestial creatures to translated terrestrial creatures. Let's also talk about angels and demons. As mortals, we commandeer our bodies by way of our agency, but nothing we do is in a vacuum. So even when we think we're alone, we are not alone. So we're always, whether consciously or not, uniting ourselves with other energies. And that's something we do with our agency that we do mostly subconsciously. For example, when we read scriptures, we're inviting with our subconscious agency, the attendance of spirits who will want to participate in that activity. There are spirits on the other side of the veil who are attracted like moths to a flame to righteous activity. And so praying, feasting on scripture, all of these things attract attention. And sometimes the things we do will invoke the presence of a dark spirit. So when we want to watch porn, for example, we may think it's something we do alone, but it definitely is not alone. There are unembodied spirits from the fallen third, and there are disembodied spirits that have passed through mortality already, but they've left unresolved certain propensities and addictions. And so they will be attracted to certain activities that we do. And we really gather quite a crowd apparently when we look at porn. In one of these near-death experiences I read about, the man who passed on witnessed a mortal young man who attracted eight spirits into his room the minute he decided to view porn. And these evil spirits waiting for the man to get the webpage up were agitated, but like excited and shouting at the young man to hurry up. And so obviously these spirits have no bodies with which to physically enjoy anything, but they can live vicariously off the pleasure of the mortal that they're watching. So they actually, this creeped me out a little bit because the spirits weren't even watching the screen itself. They were watching the man who was watching the screen. And so they envy our mortal ability to experience certain physical pleasures because they can't. So they watch us while we watch porn as if eight men in your room with you while you do that isn't creepy enough as it is. It's creepier yet that they're focused on you and not even what's happening on the screen. And there are similar reports when it comes to like alcohol and drugs. Evil spirits will watch you enviously desiring to participate because they don't have bodies. So certain activities will attract these dark spirits. On a lighter note, 
Heber Q. Hale, a stake president in Idaho in the early 1900s, slipped beyond the veil and then he was revived to his mortal body. And in those few moments that he spent on the other side, he said the colors were vivid and there were flowers everywhere. And he said, you could see the flowers blooming and hear them blooming. Isn't that wild? And the flowers and the trees and even the grass bear witness of God wordlessly. I find that so interesting. And apparently music plays a much bigger role on the other side than here. People report that everything is accompanied by music there. There are also no children in the spirit world which I find interesting, but it kind of makes sense because we know that we were fully mature and pre-existent prior to entering into mortality. So it would kind of make sense that a child who dies reverts back to their pre-mortal adult spirit form. A seven-year-old who passed beyond and revived related that during her time in the spirit world, she was a grown-up. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that during the millennium, when we are still corporeal and when we're reunited with our departed loved ones, that those departed children won't return to their child bodies and resume their upbringing and pick up where they left off as a four-year-old or whatever. Joseph promised one mother who laid her child to rest that she would have the opportunity during the millennium to, quote, bring the child up to adulthood, end quote. But in our spirit forms, it appears we're adult, which kind of makes sense because our spirits are ancient. Almost all people who pass beyond and return back report that they see a life review. So that whole life passing before your eyes thing apparently is true, but it doesn't happen before you die. From what I understand, it tends to happen after, like immediately after. So some people describe these life reviews as almost like movies. So you just review with your enhanced capacity on the other side every moment of your life, but it happens quickly because the mind is so much more capable on the other side. One man named George Ritchie described encountering other spirits on the other side, of course, because there's this thriving society there, right? And of course, they're on, on a dimension that's imperceptible to us. But every time as a spirit, George would pass by someone, there was this automatic exchange where he saw their life story and he saw his life story. And here's how he described passing by one of these angels. He said, this man knew everything about me. It was natural. It was just observable fact. He simply entered every episode of my entire life. Everything that had ever happened to me was simply there, present in full view, contemporary and current. He said he felt no shame, though, that people could see his story because he could see everybody else's story, too. So that kind of levels the playing field. And here's a quote from someone who had passed me on. He said, it was like I knew everything that was stored in my brain, everything I'd ever known. I knew all at once, even the little things I thought I had forgotten. Everything became present and clear. Another person said, my review was more of a reliving than a review. It was a reliving of every thought I'd ever had, every word I'd ever spoken, every deed I'd ever done, plus the effect of every thought, word, and deed on everyone and anyone who had ever come within my sphere of influence. I saw not just what I did, but how those things affected other people. Post-mortally with our enhanced empathy, all things become, quote, resolved in the love of God, they say. They say they can't retain a grudge or anger against someone who has wronged them because everything is tinged with this warmth that just draws all things into a state of harmony and resolution. One man described a pre-mortal school that he returned to when he visited the spirit world. He said he remembered the school and he described how learning took place there. Instead of books, you do simulations. He called them simulations. You step into a simulation to prepare you for mortal life. And every simulation is like reading a book, except you get to be the protagonist in the book. You get to live the book and experience every detail of it, um, almost as like an avatar or an apparition. 
and you could witness or virtually participate in anything you wanted. If you wanted to behold the birth of Christ or, or the creation of earth, you could witness that and you could move around and see it from every angle with perfect clarity and see everything and everyone involved from all the different perspectives of all the different people. So apparently that's how we learned premortally, which kind of makes sense because we know from Abraham chapter three and from David O. McKay's comments that prior to mortality, we each found ourselves in very different spiritual states. McKay says premortal spirits had different degrees of intelligence and achievements. I imagine that however we were educated and depending on how much we utilized that premortal education would carry with us into mortality. I mean, the veil stifles a lot of our premortal intelligence, but for many people, premortal memories do shine through. I happen to believe that these great musicians like Mozart and Chopin and Tchaikovsky, they clearly brought with them from their premortal education some of their memories because their music is heavenly. It's simply not of this world. And the same goes for all the luminaries throughout history, the authors and poets and playwrights and artists. There are superhuman gifts that people have brought with them that would indicate that they were brought in from the other side. So have you seen these twins? They're called Flo and Kay Lyman. Some people call them the Rain Man twins, and they have what's called HSAM. It's perfect autobiographical memory, basically. So it's highly superior autobiographical memory. And they're not the only ones with HSAM. About 100 people worldwide have been diagnosed with it in the past decade. But the Rain Man twins, you could say them, for example, what did you do on January 21st of 1992? And they'd say, oh, very cloudy that day. I slept in and I had waffles for breakfast and I wore such and such outfit. They could tell you every moment of every day that they've ever lived. In another NDE, this man reported he was given on the other side to understand human suffering. He says, every time we triumph over suffering, that triumph becomes written into our being and that suffering becomes a part of our glory, which actually reminds me a little bit of John chapter 20, where Christ revealed his wounds to doubting Thomas and Thomas fell at the feet of the Lord saying, my Lord and my God. So clearly something transacted there where there was a, an amazing recognition. And it's pretty fascinating how the Lord could have rattled off his divine resume. He could have said, I'm the son of God. I'm the savior of the world. But that's not how he presents himself to be recognized. He leads with his wounds and with the tokens of his suffering, with his brokenness, basically. And there's such power to the overcoming of suffering that Thomas dissolved to tears and melted to his knees. He was thunderstruck by what the Savior had succeeded in doing. And this man from the NDE who was given to know a testimony of suffering on the other side of the veil, he said that heaven is a fellowship of suffering, which sounds melancholy to our mortal perceptions, but there are scriptural parallels. Christ was called a man of sorrows in Isaiah 53. And I think we sometimes envision affliction as a test, as if some coy God is watching to see whether we get the right answers to the test. But really the purpose of the test, so to speak, is like the purpose of pain and, and adversity is to draw us away from our luxurious neutrality into a place of decision, a place where we can use our agency to decide who we intend to be and what we intend to do with the various suffering and pain that we encounter in this life. Dieter F. Uchtdorf says, agency is so important in your lives that you not only can choose, but you must. During this life, you cannot remain on neutral ground. So perhaps part of our mortal suffering is simply opportunity for choice, right? Affliction lures us out of our hidey holes. Brigham Young said, adversity can quote, cause men and women to reveal that which would have slept in their dispositions until they dropped into their graves. In other words, it brings to the fore every attribute lurking within us, every fault, every flaw, every desire, every proclivity, 
In his book, The God Who Weeps, Terrell Given says, God can weave our pain and our suffering into his purposes. His power rests not on totalizing omnipotence, but on his ability to alchemize suffering, tragedy, and loss into wisdom, understanding, and joy. So I don't know about you, but when I hear that illuminating quote, Terrell is so perceptive, I hear we can drink the bitter cup without becoming bitter. We can embrace suffering, love it, make use of it, turn it into part of our identity like Christ was so ready to do. He was always so ready to present the marks of his crucifixion like he did to Doubting Thomas because that was his crowning work. And allow me to theorize something if you don't mind. I think we often imagine that Christ descended beneath all things to heal our brokenness. And I do think the atonement heals our brokenness, but I wonder if that's only a byproduct of Christ's actual goal. Or maybe it was one of a few different goals surrounding the atonement. Or I wonder if our Savior wanted for his own understanding and to enlarge his own empathy for the human family just out of love, to feel what it's like to be murdered, robbed, belittled, to live in abject poverty, to feel every awful thing a person could possibly experience. And we tend to think of the atonement as this drudgery or something that our Lord had to do and there was no other way, but I actually think maybe he wanted to. I mean, maybe not in those immediate moments preceding the awful progression from Gethsemane to Calvary, but on an overall level, I wonder whether it really was a goal for him to take on all of these sins and pains and afflictions just for his own education. And then also as a wonderful byproduct of that, he draws us to him in the nearness of shared experience. Gethsemane, I have no idea whether I'm right about this, but for lack of a better understanding, I envision it almost like that pre-mortal school described by the man from the near-death experience. He talked about in the school where the simulations instead of books happened, I wonder whether the Gethsemane portion of the atonement could have been a similar thing. I wonder whether Christ was transfigured or taken outside the bounds of mortal time, as so many prophets have done. When Moses was transfigured in Moses 1-4, the Lord said, Wherefore, look, and I will show thee the workmanship of mine hands. And Moses was able to see this huge panorama and this timeline of all things. So perhaps part of Christ's Gethsemane experience was a transfiguration for the express purpose of walking the very footsteps by way of simulation that each of us have ever walked, crying every tear we've ever cried, all of it. And if heaven really is sort of a fellowship of suffering or a fellowship of those who have suffered, then I wonder if we so choose in the next life to undergo a similar simulation in order to better understand one another and take part in each other's suffering. I wonder if that opportunity will be extended to us. I'm curious whether we'll be invited to similarly undergo a descending into the depths of shared human pain for reasons of enlarging our empathy and broadening our experience. Galatians 6.14 says, But may it be that I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Paul says there in that verse, People are crucified to me and I to them through Christ's cross. Doesn't that kind of insinuate that the same simulation that our Lord underwent, we could possibly pass through too? so that we truly have our hearts knit together in perfect love and charity and empathy? It's just a theory, but I've so often felt like no one understands me, and I've heard other people say that same thing, that they never feel as though they've truly been understood. And I wonder whether in the next life, heaven will be so close, so knit together without seam, because we will have that one-for-one -one full understanding, that perfect empathy for one another, by way of the same principle of shared pain. And potentially through these heavenly simulations, however that technology happens to work, we will achieve that oneness with one another. And it's interesting how counter to our natures it is to desire to experience pain. I mean, there are entire cultures constructed around the principle of sparing pain. I think American culture is one. We're all about comfort. We're all about the avoidance of pain. 
And not all cultures are designed that way. You know, if you look up human suspension and firewalking and the Native American sun dance and some Eastern traditions, they understand life is inherently painful, but instead of trying to engineer the pain out of life, they learn instead to change their relationship to the pain. The Iceman Wim Hof, for example, has developed a method of voluntary exposure to the discomfort of cold climates that's been shown to improve everything from mental acuity to a bolstered immune system. Buddhists have a saying that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And there are people, thank goodness, like Brene Brown and her many dare-to-lead coaches nationwide trying to teach Americans and other Westerners a similar reality that pain can be fruitful. And these vulnerability coaches are preaching the gospel of growth, the gospel of vulnerability, risk-taking, authenticity, braving a life without guarantees. She says, we cannot selectively numb pain. When we numb pain, we also numb joy. She says, we work so hard to avoid difficulty, but difficulty is the birthplace of everything worth having. And so it seems we can remain in a state of sophisticated neutrality for a while, and some people manage to avoid true self-analysis and conscious decision-making their entire lives. But others of us, I'd say the majority of us, encounter trials in life that force us to choose what we wish to do with our pain. We can use it to alchemize compassion and change, or we can use our pain to justify our bitterness, growing increasingly bitter with each new trial until we eventually become miserable, like unto Lucifer, as stated in 2 Nephi 2.27. And Lucifer hasn't just grown bitter over his own trials and pains. He's taken it upon himself to militate on behalf of his fallen cronies and seek revenge against the children of the light, the surmounters of the suffering, because those Christ followers, he thinks, are to blame for all of this. They're evil for accepting suffering and using suffering as a basis for empathy and for education and for togetherness. And so I truly think that he has it completely backwards. I used to wonder why the devil and his pals cared enough to spend 24-7 all of their time antagonizing the human family. And that's quite a job to spend full time antagonizing the human family. And I used to think what in the world would motivate that kind of expenditure of energy. And I've come to think that he really must think he's the kind one, that he's the good one, you know? You can tell by his behavior that he thinks somehow that he has the moral high ground. And that's the only motivator powerful enough, I feel like, that could keep fueling this vitriolic revenge against the children of light. He must think that he, the sparer of pain, is the good one, and we, the brave embracers of pain, are the bad ones. He must lord over his dark kingdom as though it's the real heaven, and ours is the false heaven. And he probably assumes it's only tyranny that has given rise to God's power. He must think we are usurpers and cheaters, and if only he could access God's priesthoods, then the scepter of righteousness would finally be in the rightful hands. Power should be in his hands, he probably thinks, because he is the sparer of pain. He doesn't believe anything good can come from suffering. So he's the one who's truly kind, not that Elohim who allows his children to suffer, right? There's a Bible study podcast I listen to with a preacher named Tara Lee Cobble, and she is excellent. She always talks about the upside-down kingdom of God. Everything we know here on earth is upside down. We wish to spare ourselves pain. In heaven, they value the lessons that pain can teach. Here, we look out for self. There, they look out for others above self. Everything is completely topsy-turvy. And in hell, things are even more upside down. In hell, they think they've laid hold on heaven and that Lucifer is their rightful leader and worthy of praise. I'll switch gears here and talk for a moment about conforming the body to the stature of the spirit. This is another thing that comes up quite a bit in my near-death experience books that I'm constantly reading. And I really think that to the extent that things like alcohol and coffee and, you know, word of wisdom type stuff, uh, anything really that could be considered an appetite, even food or overeating, uh, anything that collapses the height of the spirit to the level of the corporeal is meant to be 
overcome. So to the extent that we give in to the appetites, it's not so much that I see that those things are so dirty or sinful. Certainly in Mormonism, we actually overemphasize how evil some of these things are and then underemphasize some truly sinful things. Like, for example, the idolatry of our social media and the traditions of our fathers and how lulled into a false security we are as a people thinking our religion is superior to other religions and all these types of sins that are actually much more spiritually dangerous than a little bit of caffeine or something. And yet we don't emphasize the big stuff. We linger on the small stuff. But then again, learning to abstain from appetites is important too. Part of our mortal training includes elevating our bodies to the stature of our spirits. As Matthew 26, 41 says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We start off slaves to our passions, right? Overcome by our body's mortal pull. But then we gradually, over long periods of time and after lots of practice, we become masters of ourselves. Spencer W. Kimball said it best when he said, the greatest battle of life is fought within the silent chambers of the soul. A victory on the inside of a man's heart is worth a thousand conquests on the battlefields of life. Melvin J. Ballard said it's necessary to train our appetites and our desires until there's this nice synthesizing of the spiritual man and the carnal man, wherein we have a mastery over our appetites. And he says this synthesizing is best done here in mortality because once we're disembodied in the spirit world, until we're reunited again with our bodies in the millennium, we're not totally able to carry out the work of coalescing our carnal natures and our holy natures. So he said, we can't imagine that we can go down to the grave not having overcome the corruptions of the flesh and then lose in the grave all our sins and evil tendencies. They will be with us. They will be with the spirit when separated from the body. It is my judgment that any man or woman can do more to conform to the laws of God in one year of mortal life than they could do in 10 years when they are dead. It is much easier to overcome and serve the Lord when both flesh and spirit are combined as one. I'll read you an account here of another man who passed. He passed on the operating table and he was only dead for a few minutes. His spirit wandered around the halls of the hospital and he entered an empty office and this office had a couch in it and some decorative wooden objects and also some decorations with like rock or stonework in, in the workmanship. And these were mortal objects. He was a spirit wandering in this mortal office in this hospital. And he was able to communicate, for lack of a better word, with the objects because all things on this earth, even manufactured or man-made things, are alive on some level. He did say the more manufactured things, like plastic, are much less alive than, for example, a leather couch. But it's interesting how on the other side of the veil, even objects aren't really objects. There's life in absolutely everything. There's intelligence in everything. He said he walked up to the desk in this hospital office and he just knew by way of this weird telepathic communication that you can have with everything, including objects on the other side of the veil, that the desk had been made of several trees and he saw in his mind each tree from the moment of germination to the moment the tree was cut down. The leather couch in the room, he saw each cow that comprised the couch from their birth to their rendering into the couch. And he was comforted that these objects, the trees and cows, were happy to give their lives for the benefit of humankind. They understood that their job on earth was to contribute to the plan and give themselves for the sake of our sustenance. I'm really fond of that idea because I'm an animal lover. And so I've spent entire seasons of my life as a vegetarian, but I'm not sure that's entirely necessary especially if these animals give themselves willingly kind of to our mortal project. I do think that we should do anything that we can to pare down animal suffering, like sourcing our meat responsibly or buying free range meat and eggs. In my case, my husband and I have a farm, so we eat almost exclusively the meat and dairy from our backyard. But still, I do my best not to eat meat to excess because I honor the sacrifice these animals make to keep us sustained. And I don't want to abuse their willingness. I want to show gratitude to them by eating only what I actually need. 
DNC 89.12-15 says, Yea, flesh of beasts and fowls of the air, I the Lord have ordained for the use of man with thanksgiving, but they are to be used sparingly. And grain is ordained as the staff of life, not only for man, but for beasts. And it is pleasing to me that the flesh of the beasts and the fowl of the air should be used in times of winter or cold or famine or excess of hunger. So it's strange how we completely ignore that part of the word of wisdom. It seems to me being respectful toward taking animal life is more important or at least as important as drinking coffee. And yet most Mormons don't even know that verses 12 to 15 exist. They have no idea that we've been told to try to opt for veggies and grains as the staff of life, as the text says, or in other words, we should be eating grains mostly and then eating meat in times of either when we're feeling faint or have an excess of hunger. Maybe you need a bit of protein to perk you up or something. The way Americans eat meat at every meal is not too respectful of our animal friends. Not exactly the spirit of gratitude and respect and thanksgiving like 8912 says. Let's end our episode now that we've talked about everything under the sun. I'm giving you a glimpse here of how it is to live with ADHD. My brain connects all things and so transitions are not my forte. Here are some quotes about the afterlife. The LDS author Brent Topp says, Focusing on today diminishes our tomorrow. Harold B. Lee once said, What we become in the hereafter depends on what we're after here. That's pretty clever. The Greek philosopher Epictetus said, Keep death daily before thine eyes. DNC 4334 says, Let the solemnities of eternity rest upon your minds. And a John H. Groberg quote, There is a connection between heaven and earth. Finding that connection gives meaning to everything, including death. Missing it makes everything meaningless, including life. If you enjoyed this episode, please find us on Facebook or email us at mormonprogram at gmail.com. That's M-O-R-E-M-O-N program at gmail.com.